Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emily Canedo, Jessica Rowley and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation and psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions for consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or are interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know or get in touch via email or Twitter. On today's episode, we are so lucky to have with us Dr. Catherine Kelly and Dr. Esther Correa. Esther works at Cheshire East Local Authority and prior to her educational psychology training, she was a qualified teacher. She worked in high schools, children's residential homes and post-16 settings. She's currently involved with her local community and runs a Saturday club promoting academic socialisation of children within their family and community context. This hopes to raise academic standards and empower parents by educating them in the education system, as well as supporting families to negotiate and develop mutually supportive school home relationships. Dr. Catherine Kelly is an assistant director of the doctorate in educational and child psychology at the University of Manchester. She is also an educational psychologist for Bury Metropolitan Borough Council. Catherine has also published widely in the field of educational psychology and we're so excited to have them both here today. Welcome this evening, Esther and Catherine. It's absolutely fantastic to have you on the podcast today. Before we go any further, I think it would be really great if both of you could just say your name and your current role so that when people are listening, they'll be able to know who's Esther and who's Catherine. So Esther, if I could just start with you, if you could just introduce yourself and your current role. Right. My name is Esther Curio, um, educational psychologist at Cheshire East. My name is Catherine Kelly and I am an educational psychologist in Bury Local Authority and a tutor here on the doctorate in child and educational psychology at Manchester. Really what we'd love to start with is just asking you a bit about yourselves and in particular your journeys towards becoming educational psychologists. Be interested to hear obviously both working in in local authority contexts in different ways and and Catherine you have your training role at the University of Manchester. It'd be really helpful just to hear a little bit about the place of consultation in your current work. My journey into educational psychology I I think like many people who I've heard talk about their journeys in retrospect now seems more planful than it um, actually felt at the time but um, when I was a student I um, worked in the summers in um, the US and in Germany it was sort of a well-trodden path for, for lots of British and Irish students but I really sort of enjoyed the experience of you know being in a different place So when I graduated, I did a short course in TEFL, teaching English as a foreign language, and went off to Spain, to Barcelona, to work, which was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. But also, I found while I was there that I really enjoyed teaching. So when I came back to the UK, I did my PGCE, my postgraduate certificate in education, and became a primary school teacher. And I worked for um, four years in uh, East London in Hackney and Tower Hamlets and as part of the induction offered to newly qualified teachers 
in Tower Hamlets, um, we had a talk from one of their EPs, Rooney Saeed. And that was sort of the first time, I think, that I'd really heard about educational psychology. It wasn't a big part of my undergraduate degree, but I sort of was quite interested. And so thought about it during my time teaching and then eventually applied um, to do the master's course, as it was then, at UCL, University College London. And um, so did that about 25 years ago now. And then subsequently did um, a doctorate at, at UCL as, as well. So I was an EP in various local authorities around London and in Essex and worked on the programme at UCL for, for a little while. And now um, relocated to the northwest, where I'm from originally, and work on the programme here at Manchester. And as I say, in practice in Bury, one of Greater Manchester's authorities. So that's my journey. So my journey, God, mine is not as planned as yours, Catherine. Now having had your story, mine. <laughs> mine I started off. I'm originally from Kenya, so I sort of came in to do a master's in in, in food technology, which I absolutely love, nutrition and 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 dietics. That's what I had a passion for. And then while I was doing my master's, uh, my supervisor said, oh, Esther, there's such a desperate need for teachers and you're doing food technology. Do you fancy applying and seeing? Initially, I couldn't be bothered because I really didn't want to be in the classroom. But I did apply and I actually fell in love with teaching. Uh, part of me, of course, it wasn't just the teaching, but it was the fact that the holidays were fantastic. And I had a growing family, so it was you. You got the time off to spend time with your children, then you'd be back again. Um, so I I remained in education purely because um, that really fitted well with my growing family. And then I fell in love with um, teaching because I worked in I've always worked in inner city schools, and I think the challenge it brings it, in a way you kind of have to you have to grow, you have to find a way to manage because you can't just quit and move on. So I think in that struggling and trying to manage and trying to understand why the children I was working with, just why I wasn't getting the success rate, that um, they were talking very highly about themselves, but we weren't translating into something that we were seeing was tangible. They weren't going to university. They didn't have aspirations for university initially. Um, so I then at one point thought, Do you know what, maybe I need to go and understand special needs and I actually applied for the course for special needs um, and it was while I was applying for that course psychology had always been the second best for me and I kind of changed my mind and decided to do psychology instead I was doing my master's um, at uh, I applied at uh, University College of London it was while I was doing that I came across educational psychology so after about um, 16 years of teaching went off to do my master's began to understand why why the children were struggling the way they were began to understand what aces was the adverse childhood experiences impact of trauma impact of um uh, family struggling and how that affected impact of the community we were in and how even though we want um we were in the community and were isolated in our in our in our fenced school but when our children were going home they were part of that community and the difficulties within that community understanding how that was influencing and affecting our children understanding how literacy and numeracy and how uh, no matter how hard we tried if they hadn't got the basics of uh, reading and writing we weren't always going to struggle with them um adhd came in i'd, I'd done a bit of my um teacher training when I arrived in the UK to get me ready for teaching in the UK we only had I think a, a, an evening an inset on on send 
So I didn't understand anything about the children I was teaching. So when I did my master's, finally the autism clicked and I remembered, oh yeah, that's why that child wouldn't talk to me. I'd walked in, moved their sitting place, not explained why I was changing the sitting place. So almost wanted to go back and apologize to these children that I had actually impacted quite negatively, I felt. But sort of um, when I then found about the educational psychology, I thought, yeah, I'm going to try this. So it was either educational psychology or counselling psychology. Counselling psychology, if I was very honest, it was because one was going to be funded and one I had to find a way to fund it. So when educational psychology said yes, I thought, go into that. But at the side, I have maintained a bit of counselling because I find that that helped me with my consultation, especially as I was moving away from teaching where we were always giving advice. I found it really tricky and really hard to move away from that teaching mode into EP I really struggled initially to shift so I thought the counseling which I'd initially started before I got onto my doctorate had begun to help me how to listen without having to offer advice so I think in a way um that's where my journey started I think I still feel like I'm on a journey I still struggle sometimes and I want to go back into the classroom and sort of go and say let me put into practice what I actually learned. So I do that within my community instead because I can't go back in and teach. So I do that within my community with children, young people. And then I do support parents to understand um, when they've had involvement with professionals to help them understand the paperwork and as well as helping them get on to education themselves to better understand their own children's education. So in a, in a small and very disorganized way, I got myself here. Sounds <laughs> very organized to me. <laughs> I was going to say both of your stories of kind of your journeys here are just so interesting because you've got so many different uh, cultural influences coming into play um, in terms of where you guys like moved from or lived and kind of those influences in our work. I'm wondering as well, kind of the placing consultation that you have at the moment in your services. Hmm. I think um, it, it has quite a small place in, in my service at the moment, but there are some quite particular. But if I think about the place of consultation, in the various services that, that I've worked in uh, over the years and, and the place of consultation in in teaching on the uh, on the training programs. I think, you know, I come very much, uh, I was part of um, being trained um, by Patsy Wagner um, and I, I guess I still sort of hold that as my um, guiding uh, principles in in consultation but also more recently I've trained in video interaction guidance big and I've used both video enhanced reflective practice a, a lot and actually that has really helped my consultation practice and made me think about those basics of attuning to to consultees and sort of paying attention to getting that initial tune attunement in place and then building from there. Hmm. Well, where I am, we do do consultation, but you can imagine uh, the shock for me when I found out it was group consultation, which, uh, <laughs> yeah, took me a long time to kind of understand how I was going to move from sort of having consultation with just um, school staff and parents and then this was going to be a group of senkos so it's been a, a learning curve but it, I, I find it very important because our service delivery is consultation and I find it much more um, I find I, I get more done 
when I do consultation. So I do appreciate consultation. I appreciate um the skills we bring in when we do consultation. And I like I said, I've had the counseling, so I'm constantly using that. I think that's been a way that has helped me understand consultation. So sort of going into training, I'd never sort of say never do, do consultation because for us teaching, we have that short meeting at the end of the academic year where you kind of tell the children and parents what they've achieved. But effectively you're not really there to listen to what the parent has mm. to pretty much pouring information out and saying they're either achieving or not achieving goodbye see you whereas now it's about sitting and listening to them and sort of appreciating that they have come with some knowledge about their child and they're experts in their own rights and then sort of um I think I get it really well when I work with early years especially because I haven't got a my area of specialism is high school, so I'm more comfortable in high school. So when I go into early years, I find I tend to listen a lot more because I have to understand, um, mm -hmm. especially when they begin and they're in phonics and I'm kind of, what is phase one, what is phase two? So I'm having to actually draw in the teacher and say, could you explain that to me? And I think when I've done that, and that was something I picked up from one of the, um, while in, in uni, one of the trainers uh, was sort of saying, just say you don't know anything and let them explain. And as you ask him, as you share that you don't know, that empowers the teacher. And I've found that that has empowered teachers who then we've had a proper conversation and proper, we've sat together and problem solved and moved away from within child to actually looking at the nursery school and looking at the people around the child. How knowledgeable are they? But that's come from me acknowledging that I don't know anything about your setting and about the progress of children, the phonics, that's enabled them. So I found that particular one, when it's not, if I could call it maybe individual, when it's just teacher, parent, I find that much easier. It has been a learning curve doing group, especially as you come in as a trainee and you find it already embedded and you find the sense already a group of friends and you're sort of this person coming in and you're trying to change things because you're kind of thinking, I need everybody talking, I need everybody sharing solutions, and we need to be working as a team. So sometimes it's worked, but I found that I've got to meet the same because individually in the settings, I'm finding in now my second year, the group consultations I've had this year so far have been more productive because I think the confidence has grown and, and the sort of having the confidence to stop the conversation saying, actually, right now we need to reflect and just support this particular thing it sounds like she's having a really tough time and let's just stop and pause and that confidence of not going I've got to be finished by 12 30 I've got another meeting that's men consultations getting better so I value consultation I think I value it more so than um, say maybe assessments um but then again maybe it's because I knew nothing about consultation so the training the research assessment and interventions were things of the teacher I kind of have an, had an understanding about so when I was coming into training, consultation was the one thing I knew nothing about. So when I started on my journey of thesis, the reason I kind of hooked on to consultation was it was the one thing that I thought I know nothing about, I'm struggling with. And when um, it was, I was kind of brought around to thinking your dissertation, what could it be around? It's social justice broadly, but how could you narrow it down? And I kind of narrowed it down to consultation, culturally responsive consultation. So I've kind of hitting two birds at the same time, doing a thesis and learning about consultation and how I could become a better person as a consultant. Yes, yeah, so that's where consultation fits in for me in my role.
Wow, I'm like blown away. <laughs> There's so many questions I want to ask you about group consultation personally, because I haven't really done any, but I realize that that's not the purpose of this episode. <laughs> but yeah, just both of your journeys and kind of how consultation fits into your day-to-day work, uh, not just in your current service, but more broadly in other services you've worked in is really interesting to kind of hear about. And Catherine, you also spoke about, you know, the idea of a big video interactive guidance and VERP. And, you know, you've published so widely on so many topics, including like VERP and consultation, the assess plan do review cycle, and kind of looking over this work, did you notice any common threads emerging or themes? I, I think that the, the, the cornerstone of both is or where they have clear touch points and similarities is that focus on being tuned to your consultee or consultee. That sort of, as Esther was just saying, really listen to your consultees, not sort of listening, waiting for the gap so you can make your next point or ask the question that that, that you feel you need to explore. But really listening, really receiving what people are saying and acknowledging, summarising back so that people know you've received what they're saying and then building from there if you want to take the conversation in another direction or selecting a, an element of what people have shared with you that you think it would be useful to build on. But I think that's what um, video enhance, uh, video interaction guidance has really helped me identify within consultation the sort of micro of that process of really listening to, to your consultees and and showing that you've listened by by offering it back. But I'm wondering, Esther, actually, because you were talking about group consultation, how does that kind? How do you feel that kind of works when you're with a, a group of people? I think I'm still learning about it. I'm still finding um, right. So if I was maybe my first year, because I started doing it in my third year of training, my second mid second year and third year of training. And that I think took me back because we hadn't had training on group consultation. The training we'd had was with teacher or with with, with parents, but never with groups of senkos or, or groups of teachers, never had that. Um, so how I, how I do it, how we tend to do it. Number one, we kind of have to have, we have, um, I run mine with, a member of the autism team so we are not so I'm not in by myself so at least I have some support in terms of facilitating and kind of holding the feelings um I'm not sort of left to myself but when I've done it by myself it's been quite um it, it, you take your entire being has to be on the table and you come away totally exhausted but we kind of think about following solution circle where um every member kind of comes in as an expert and they kind of share whatever problem or situation they're bringing and we kind of offer solutions so in a way much as sometimes it will come across as if you're kind of carrying the weight of the entire room in a way that actually the senkos offer better solutions sometimes because they're the clusters are in the same area so they have to be they they're in the same community so they have the same factors affecting them and impacting the children and young people they're working with so what i find is they offer much better practical solutions because sometimes you'll be thinking all psychological and thinking about you know oh, have you done this but they will actually go back to have you just sent a meet and greet this is how we do our meet and greet we don't just have it in the morning we actually go to the car park we actually knock on the door in the morning and they get those practical ideas there's sharing of resources as well happens quite a lot so you don't have to come in with as an expert 
which I think that was my thought initially when I sort of um, had group consultation. I thought I'll be the only person sat there and they'll all be waiting for me to offer them um, these strategies and, and help them solve these problems. But actually, when you kind of start it off and say we're all experts, we're all coming in with different specialists, some senkers are quite um, well knowledgeable about autism, so they offer quite a lot of information whenever there's a case of a child with social communication difficulties. And I sometimes step back and I literally, all I do is take notes to just refer back to because they're actually having that conversation within their circle, not realizing it. Sometimes it takes them a while before they realize I haven't said the thing, which to me, I think um, on reflection, of course, now I see, oh God, that's actually a very good thing. But sometimes I panic and I think, should I be saying something? I can't just be sat here doing nothing. You know, I'm the EP, I should be facilitating, I should be leading, but actually being comfortable that I'm just facilitating, there will be a time that they will have more knowledge because they've had similar children. So in a way, I find it much better now than actually having the individual Senko teacher and parent because there's a lot of shared knowledge around and we tend to come to a shared understanding. I find much faster because different people have say different things and we've begun to actually identify what's more important what's less important but I think it always sometimes comes back to when they kind of think that because you're the EP or the one who should have the final say I think I still struggle with sort of saying actually what that same could say is a much better idea I don't think I need to say anything to it but I think it's almost kind of they need to put on their paperwork EP suggested this with an actual sense I think it's it's reflecting maybe within our service how we do our paperwork and, and and maybe as a local authority are we kind of creating this situation where we are putting ourselves as experts without realizing because we our paperwork is 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 demanding that before a child needs a assess we need to show a plan to review and we're insisting a professional has to be involved in an actual sense do we need who's the professional are those senkers not professionals in their own right can they not be the ones indicating whether there's need and we're sort of coming along where um they've trialed a lot of different things and we're only coming in after as opposed to sort of saying they need we need ep involvement when I, I feel sometimes they've already done the input and they've done it much better then again there is the concern i always think i've done a three-year course i don't want to be kicked out of a job so sometimes it's, it's getting that balance right because there is that concern that i need to be we, we need to be seen as we are we're worth the three years that the government has paid for us to be trained so what are we bringing to the table but I, I suppose I'm still finding my balance in sort of being comfortable to say actually I don't need to be contributing here the experts have said it all but at the same time having to fit in with the local authority and what they expect of my um my services they're paying for them so it's kind of getting that balance right I hope that answers your questions Zara. I know I've kind of gone off on a different tangent after all I I think Esther, there's a lot in in what you said there that um, about what the EP is doing in the situation you describe that is sort of um, invisible or not explicit because you know you, you talked about using the solution circle structure and I think one of the things that is important about group consultation is having a clear structure because I think then that supports the management of the dynamics. Because the extra difficulty in a group consultation is the increased amount of interpersonal dynamics that, that, that as the facilitator, you are managing. So having a clear structure sort of helps to manage that dynamics because the structures usually make really clear 
when it's your turn to talk and when it's your turn to listen and what the purpose of the talking or the listening is. So it takes away some of that need as the facilitator to to be doing that management of the interpersonal dynamics. Yeah. And I think what, what you said as well about sort of feeling, um, you know, that feeling of it takes a lot out of you. There's a lot that that that, that you are doing. And I guess, you know, just going back to that attunement principle, attuning to an, an increased number of people mm. so that they feel comfortable with you. And particularly in the situation you described where it was a group of Senkos who already felt comfortable with each other, which is a real benefit because then they're relaxed and they have rapport between each other. But there's a job of work, isn't there, about um, getting to the place where they feel comfortable with you and you feel comfortable with them and you're all clear about each other's roles. And, and, and you know, and it sounds like you're still working some of that out mm. and, you know, helped or hindered by the local authority paperwork, maybe casting you a bit into an expert role as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Is that reflecting? Because I think what you struggle with in, in such a big group and the fact that I still do mine virtually to allow, because um, we find when I do it virtually, those are able to dip in and out so they're not having to leave school. So we get a very good attendance because we're doing it virtually. But it's being able to reflect those feelings back and and, and just sort of in, in some cases, because we've we've been trained, so we kind of understand the power of the pause and just allowing that space for when when someone's shared a very difficult case and you can see they they've come in and they they really care about this child and 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 the danger sometimes I find of our need to constantly reframe language. So where and I always find that sometimes it's not the place in that group to be reframing because you don't want to make that one think or feel like they're talking negatively about a child because of the way you reframe the language. Sometimes it's being comfortable to listen to that language and understand where that school member of staff is coming from and why their choice of language is such that that is how much um how invested they are in my opinion i think that's how invested they are they're just trying the best and it's 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 my place to kind of find the right time and right space to reframe such that it's not targeted to that one thing but it's a reframing for all of us as a group to begin to understand that our language again sometimes impacts and affects how we begin to support the, the the person who's brought the problem so I find I'm having to kind of balance and I'm constantly taking notes because I know there is something I want to reframe but I know that's not the right time but towards the end when we kind of finish off and kind of that's when you jump in and kind of say let's think about the language but you don't ha you then have to think of a different example because you don't want to single out that one thing so all this is going through your head but yeah, the solution cycle, I think, has been the best kind of framework for us so far. But like I say, we're all kind of trialing different things and then reflecting and using supervision space to sort of think, how could we move forward? Are we Do we feel comfortable and happy with what we're doing in mm. our group consultations? Hearing the complexity of what you're you're trying to do and the space that you're trying to create for them, um, and that like reflection in action of is now the time to say something actually no it's not I need to go but I will come back and I, that presence to be able to do that I'm a not surprised you're so tired at the end I'd imagine is quite quite wearing but equally you know Catherine's point about the invisible nature of applying psychology in such a context that may be a sign of something working really well is it's maybe less apparent and less clear because 
you've created a context and are facilitating something where or a group of professionals feel like they can actually be honest about how they feel, especially, you know, now and, and the kind of current context and what school staff and, and other people in the community are facing. I think it's a um it's a testament to your skill about what you're doing in, in that group consultation. And I think one of the things that um, Esther and I have worked on together, which Esther referred to it earlier, was um, as part of Esther's thesis, she worked on a, a systematic literature review of cultural responsive practice in consultation. I think as, as Esther's identified, she very bravely wanted to um, sort of find out more about consultation to, to support her practice. And as I, Esther and I have reflected since um, Esther has graduated, we found out a lot of useful and interesting things from the papers we were able to gather, which incidentally were all US-based. So, you know, there's a, a definite research gap identified there for the UK to explore how UK practitioners see cultural responsiveness within their consultation. But actually, as Esther and I have reflected since, many of the things that were identified in the papers, which seem like key aspect that school psychology, US school psychology practitioners were identifying, actually, they are probably elements of best practice for consultation in general. Because mm-hmm. as we sort of discussed and reflected, you know, if only from the starting principle of you are unlikely to have a consultation with somebody who has had the same life experience as you. So in some way, there will always be some degree of cultural difference between you taking culture in its very widest sense. Yeah. You know, as sort of the ways we have been brought up the you know the the, mm. the sort of our, our habits routines customs um so that there'll always be some difference so culturally responsive practice we've sort of concluded that you know it applies across the board whereas yeah. in the literature we examined from the u.s culture was often sort of conflated with race or ethnicity and and a lot of, that's what a lot of the papers talked about so yeah well i think we're sort of presenting uh, the work as, as we sort of come to write it up for publication, one, with culture in a much broader context, and, and two, as this is general, um, we can move from these principles to general good practice. Yeah. Because yeah. there will always be some degree of cultural difference. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the things that when Zara and I looked at, um, so Esther, your thesis overall topic, as far as we kind of had understood, was around social justice in kind of educational psychology so there was a kind of a general sense and then kind of something kind of coming down towards um culture and consultation and exactly that point about the noticing in in the review section about how often culture was sort of equated with ethnic or or racial difference which maybe is not quite how culture is necessarily always conceptualized or you're thinking about intersecting aspects of well you know what might it mean to be um a black man versus Mm -hmm. a black woman for example so bringing in sort of you know class sex gender um language status you know all sorts of different variables that that may be relevant I guess one of the that was one of the questions that Zara and I were really interested in about when when you were looking at that um literature Esther and in the discussions that you know Catherine you and Esther had together was that something that surprised you that they, that those culture had been kind of 
maybe seen particularly through the lens of race and ethnicity? Or was that something that that you were kind of ex- expecting to see? And I think it surprised us initially, didn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, and because there's a, because the context of doing a literature review is there's a lag between the literature you can access and the current context. So um, what we had found was additionally highlighted because Esther was writing her thesis in 2020. So in the context of Black Lives Matters and, and more of a reflection on uh, evolving from that, a greater reflection on sort of intersectional experiences. So there was more of a current awareness, it felt like, but that wasn't reflected in the literature, which obviously was from earlier times. You know, so, so some of the papers we were looking at were sort of from, you know, uh, I think 2010 and, you know, maybe maybe earlier. So, so, so there was a bit of a juxtaposition, I think, between what we felt was being reflected in the papers and what might be current thinking and differences in current thinking in, in the US and then... As you, as you say, Emma, perhaps a different conceptualization in 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 the UK. I think we are um, more ready to focus on class in 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 the UK, especially more recently. Uh, you know, in for, for better or worse, <laughs> not always in necessarily positive ways. But yes, I think. There was a lack of intersectionality in, in in the papers we found, which I don't think is reflected in more recent literature, which is which is coming out of both the US and, and the UK. Yes, yeah, the same thing I was going to say because I was because I was doing my systematic literature review at the same time when I was doing my empirical study, and my empirical study the focus groups were very um, aware. Of of course, because it, we just had 2020, so we were we were having these conversations in 2021. So very aware of those intersectionalities that was going on, and very aware of the impact. And I think we'd also had a BBC program that had recently aired, or had just previously mm-hmm. just aired on um on the use of um psychometric assessments to kind of um place children in special needs and I think that was something that they were already reflecting on as a team so when we're having this conversation and probing them with the focus group questions well it was it was almost um we'd moved ahead but again as Catherine says the the, the American paper summer 2010 so they were in a different almost era just 10 years ago so they were mostly um and I suppose maybe in America, their focus is on um, the, the movement of immigration. So it's almost you've got your pockets of schools. that are. Uh, um, it felt like when I was doing the research, pockets of schools that are dealing mainly with um, children um, with a Spanish background. So you have to have um, an understanding of, of they seem to even have school psychologists who are bilingual. And that was something they were bringing to the table. They weren't just school psychologists they were actually bilingual school psychologists I think that is something we don't do here because we kind of um, are aware in a way I think we are aware that um, culturally responsive consultation is not about just the culture in terms of race we are aware of class we are aware of um, that we're caught we, we, we've come from different backgrounds so I have been in training with with, with people who different age groups so I have had um, when I was doing my training my experience as a teacher and the fact that I was coming into training with 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 three children at different stages of education where I couldn't commit so much time to the training because they were going through key stages of their lives and you had some who were young didn't have the 
commitments of a family and therefore half the time we were different we were coming in with something totally different i was sharing experience that was personal they were sharing experience that was from um places where they were working and you get a different you get a different understanding based on that experience and i think we were quite aware because i know within our own group um in training we were not just with those actually a, a conversation of we, we need to stop focusing when we talk about cultural responsive consultation we wanted to shift away from race we wanted to include social class and we're having those conversations and very difficult they're very uncomfortable conversations to have so and I think we had them I think we had them and maybe what we I reflected was we probably because we're doing them online again. So I think that made it really difficult to have those proper conversations. And had it been face to face, maybe we would have had them in a much more in-depth manner. But I think we went away into our into our after graduating and while we're still in placement, I think we went away thinking not just about race or ethnicity, but we were thinking about social class, which I think for me coming from a different country then coming in and watching a lot of the programs at the time I could see the difference but I couldn't hear people talking about social class but yet I could see the difference I could see the way particular programs were portraying the working class I could mm-hmm. see the way there was almost a, a mocking of the working class but that wasn't being spoken about in school yet we were using language which I was finding quite shocking mm-hmm. to describe students in that manner but we weren't willing to sit down and talk about it yet we were quite okay to sit in the staff room and talk about ethnic differences and how we should be managing our classrooms best on on race but we weren't willing to have those conversations of managing our classrooms based on working class in terms of classes so I think um I find anyway and and I and I'm sure it well my own experience is there's a shift and we are social justice is happening not mm-hmm. as not as quickly as we would like it to, but we are having those difficult conversations. I think sometimes we become stuck, and I think it's more like an it's got to be an EP thing. We always want to discuss and debate things, and I find we discuss too much and we never get into action because we're constantly to and fro. Is that language appropriate? Is it not appropriate? And now we've found ourselves, we haven't got ourselves ready, and now we have the transgender that we need to be considering on top mm-hmm. of all the other sort of, um, I lose well, the word. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. we, we're not, and we, we're being caught up because we're not moving quick enough, in my opinion, where we're, we're constantly worrying about, is our language appropriate? Is our language right? So we're coming into consultation. We're not being curious enough because we don't want to offend or we don't know whether we'll offend. So we're not just sort of, and for some sense, because when you have feedback from them, they're not bothered. They just want you to have that conversation. They're not there to judge you because, we start our consultations by clearly stating this is a safe space where we are going to be talking. We don't need to mind. We don't need to worry about our language because I know for myself, if I was to be talking to you and I have to be politically correct, I will not say what I'm thinking mm. because I've got to constantly be thinking about the words I'm producing. Can I pronounce them? Can I? Am I going to say them correctly? Mm. Whereas if we mm. are already saying that this is a safe space. Why should we worry about the language we're using? We can reframe at the end when yeah. we're done with the consultation and therefore then we can begin to move on to cultural consultation. To, to... It's such a, it's because that point, Esther, about needing to be able to have challenging conversations and not to be silenced out of fear 
mm. of offending or fear of saying the wrong thing or using the wrong I mean, it's it's something I think is is hugely topical right now given what's going on in in the world and in what's going on in for for children and young people that we're working with I think and it's really important to be able to think about one another as well as the people that we're working with one point that I think kind of came out in the implication section of of some of the work that you did was this issue about that raising like a, a hypothesis around culture uh, could be particularly difficult and, and challenging. And, you know, Zara and I were reflecting about what an important point that is. It is the sense that you had when you were reflecting on that, that is that part of what was making it difficult, that language, like people trying to almost police what they said or how they said it or whether a safe a, a kind of a space felt containing or safe enough was that part of why this raising of culture is as like a factor that might be pertinent or relevant to the given situation is that part of what led to the challenge or were there other things that were going on I I think I think in our reflection, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, Esther, but I, I think in our reflections, what we came to was, as Esther has sort of talked about, feeling safe to be able to explore these issues and feeling a safe space to offer and be challenged is, is, is really important. And there are sort of layers of that. And within EP services, because Esther's empirical work was working with a particular service who were, um, you know, looking to explore these issues, which I think is becoming increasingly um, uh, more more common in EP services than, than, you know, sort of it has been since sort of pre-2020 for various reasons. You know, we've got the Me Too movement, you know, the implications across different groups of, of lockdown and COVID. And, and the Black Lives Matters movement. So I think it is much more something which is on agendas within EP services. But one of the key reflections we came to was that within a service, there has to be investment in creating a safe space with supportive leadership in order to be able to begin those conversations within the service. And, and we sort of made a distinction and we borrowed from... Um, from restorative justice practice, we made a distinction between inward-facing work, the work we do on ourselves and our values and in discussion with our EP colleagues, and the outward-facing work, the work we do with clients. And so we sort of came to the realisation that there was a need for the inward-facing work so that people had an opportunity to explore in what felt like a safe and contained way, their own values and the values of their colleagues, in order then to feel in a position to be able to raise those conversations in, out in practice in the outward facing work from a position of confidence and comfort, whilst acknowledging that you know these are difficult conversations and potentially create discomfort, but feeling first of all that I am in a position where I feel professionally equipped to do that, having done all the inward-facing work and having taken the time to build the relationships in which I can now go and raise 
you know, potentially discomfort raising um, in issues. And and we sort of try, I keep waving my hands about as we're talking, because I'm trying to sort of um, convey the, the model that, that, that we sort of drew together that tried to um, conceptualise all of that with the inward facing work and the outward facing work and the relationships um, be, between those. Yeah, because what was quite important was relationship building was sort of very, very important. It came through that it wasn't just about relationships with, with our, the professionals we work with and parents. It was about building relationships within the service as well and making sure that, as Catherine is saying, that you can actually have those conversations, not just with your supervisor, but those conversations with your colleagues. And that makes it easy then for us to go out and build those relationships with other professionals and with parents and, and, and the children, young people we're working with. So relationship building was one key thing that really kind of uh, was a thread across but both the, con the, the my literature review and my empirical study. Building relationships was very key. But actually, as Catherine says, all the things that came out of the systematic literature review, like self-disclosure as a way of building relationships, um, was something that in America, in the American papers, that's what they were doing to kind of make uh, parents feel that they were understood and that they were not um, on their own because there was that, um, when you read the papers, that the parents were coming in as if they were underneath and they, they felt like the school psychologist was the fount of all knowledge. So it was using self-disclosure to try and balance that field, so the power imbalance. And it, and it wasn't just about... Um, culture, ethnicity. There was also the age difference for one of the papers. I remember one of the, the school psychologists being younger and feeling that they couldn't um, explore certain topics because the teacher was much older than they were. And in some cases, it's parents and feeling if a parent is younger, are, are we mentally judging them that they should be having a child at that age? So it was kind of, it wasn't just culture, but there was those elements that needed to be considered, which sometimes when we kind of, focus too much on culture we forget that for some for some EPs when we go into a school the age difference sometimes we we we're we mm -hmm. not aware of but actually it's impacting on us and we're kind of thinking when it's when a senko or a teacher says they've been teaching 30 years and you're thinking what am I bringing to the table if you've been doing the job for 30 years and being kind of cautious and therefore we're not challenging because we're not wanting to offend because we're thinking they've been doing it 30 years but actually we're bringing a fresh uh, a pair of eyes into the situation we're having fresh um we're trying to help them understand the child and not just the experience so i i i felt um i came away and i've, I've tried within my own sort of practice as an individual to make sure i'm building those relationships because i understand how key they are to be able to challenge making sure i'm i'm doing all the paperwork and reading through the paperwork before i go into consultation to identify because it's not just about um culture but it's also understanding the background of the family and, mm. and finding a point in which during that conversation you can not almost uh, you can almost find a way to get in where they can understand that you are human first before you actually became an EP and you understand the challenges they're facing even though you may not be experiencing them now you do have an understanding because sometimes just reflecting back feelings may not be good enough for some of our parents but having a bit of self-disclosure, and I know this is something not everybody feels comfortable about. I found it has helped me really, really well when I kind of, especially we have, um, in terms of now having consultations with children, emotional best school and avoidance. 
and parents mm. feeling really it, it, it's such a tricky conversation to be having my child not attending but that bit of self-disclosure to just remind them that actually you, you do have a child at home and they've experienced something similar and and parents kind of you, you can see some parents the the cotton almost falls off and they begin to tell you things that they weren't telling you and, and eventually you're piecing together and you're able to kind of uh, have a shared understanding because that little one bit of self-disclosure has enabled them to realize that actually we all are human before we become these other people and I think that's the important thing that it's, it's coming through when I was doing it it was the self-disclosure empathy trying to find practical ways to show your empathy and not just sort of mm. saying I'm empathizing with you, reflecting feelings back, because I think we can mechanically begin to do that. Yeah. Mm, we need yeah. to be kind of being very careful that we are yeah. bringing a bit of ourselves to the table because we are asking parents, similar to how we ask children, young people, to share the most deepest secrets, but we don't want to give anything away. So I think sometimes we have to be very practical with our reflecting our feelings back. It can become quite... Um, can be almost like we, we're just doing it on autopilot and and, yeah. and parents can feel, yeah especially if a parent is knowledgeable about what you're trying to do mm -hmm. but if you could just if we could find practical ways so for me that's my next level is making sure that I'm actually practical when I'm reflecting my feelings I'm being practical I'm sharing a bit of me and making mm -hmm. sure that they understand I'm not just there as an EP, I'm there as a human being yeah. to walk alongside them to get their story out because I want to share their story. Mm. I'm not just mm. collecting that story. I want to share their story. I want them to be able to share their feelings, their thoughts and their and their future aspirations for their child. And we can't do that if we don't go into consultation. Understanding the relationships are so important, but we have to be really practical with how we're building this relationship. Mm. What are we doing to make them and, understand. And I think you've identified yeah. so that there is something about taking the responsibility to really work at finding that point of contact. Mm. What What is the, you know, where, where might the point of contact be? As, as you've described, it might be the common experience of being a parent. But there is something about, as a professional, taking the responsibility to work to find that point of contact. You know, yeah. not, not just, you know, I'm not a parent, so therefore there won't be one. Absolutely. Know. I mean, there's so much in, in what you were both saying, but I think one thing that really came to mind quite powerfully, Esther, was the sort of how guilt and shame, like the, the shame you may feel like about, say, my child's not going to school and understandably worried, well, everyone will judge and say, what a terrible parent I must be that I, I can't make that happen or I'm not protecting my child from some experience they're having in school that's led them to that, or the guilt that you may feel as a teacher that you're not you're not doing the right thing or being the right way, um, which is then making me think about the kind those really powerful feelings that we as EPs can have. Did I say the wrong thing? Have I, you know, let someone down? Should I have mm. done it that way? Have I hurt somebody? And like Catherine saying, the, the responsibility that rests with us as the psychologist, as opposed to a person coming for for consultation. And so, yeah, I, that was one of the other things that Zara and I wanted to ask you about was that self-knowledge and that understanding yourself on the inside and your own self-awareness and how your own powerful feelings can really play out 
and sort of the the importance of reflection, the importance of supervision in being able to be culturally responsive and that kind of connection between the consultation relationship and the supervision relationship, I guess, really. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think we'd be interested in just hearing a little bit about any points of connection that you would make in your current practice between, say, supervision, learning about yourself, and then how you can go and practice in a culturally responsive way when you're doing consultation? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I had to do that, I think, because I ended up following the trans At the time, I didn't even know it was transcultural supervision, but I think I needed that. I needed my supervisor to hear my story, to understand where I was coming from, because I think um, when you do the training, I think the focus to get in to the training is you put in so much energy to get in, but no one ever tells you actually carrying on and keeping and ensuring you remain in that training to see to the end the challenges that you face and I think I I forgot where I'd come from and I had um, you, you almost kind of put yourself in this situation where I have gotten to the course so why am I complaining you know other people didn't get in and you, you you kind of get into the course and and I had to sort of step back and remember who I was, and I needed that space where I could tell this person who was supervising me, look, this is who I am. I may come across as lacking confidence, but it's because I've kind of hit a brick wall because all of a sudden this 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 ability that I thought I had as a teacher, I no longer know what I'm doing. You know, as a teacher, everything was in my fingertips. I no longer know what I'm doing. And I ended up, we did it. And then we did that. We had a unit in university with Catherine Mm -hmm. talking about transcultural supervision. And I realized that actually I'd done a bit about it, but not really known what it was. So I kind of still brought it in again once I kind of knew what it was. And it really helped me understand me and allowed me to feel comfortable in going into a consultation and saying, actually, that I am sitting here, I am reflecting, but actually my feelings are taking over and I'm struggling to pay attention here and being 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 um, confident enough to begin to wrap things up and sort of find a way out because you're recognizing that maybe I'm, I'm, I'm being too invested here and saying, I think I need to check in and, and being comfort, confident and comfortable to let parents and school teachers know that I need supervision. I need to check in with my supervisor to find out how best to move forward with this. Because sometimes we we feel like we have to have a solution sometimes and we need to come to a shared understanding after that one and a half hours. But actually what I realized is I can leave a consultation without having had a shared understanding. It is okay to actually reflect. And if you need somebody else to help you with that reflection and then get back in touch with the parents or the school teachers and saying, after reflection, I feel like this is the this is where this is what is happening for you. Are you in agreement? And you find that they've also been reflecting, but because we stop our consultations and we think we have to reflect after that one and a half hour, what I found is sometimes the child or young person will come back and say, actually, I don't think you understood me. But because I offered the reflection straight away mm. and wrapped it up, written the report, and it's only when you meet the child again. And they kind of said, actually, I feel like you came with your preconceived ideas about me. And when that happens, you kind of, I've kind of stepped back and really worried and then realized, actually, that's learning. So I think that's where, for me, the implications of continued learning online, 
constantly um, reflecting on your skills and finding ways to kind of develop your own skills come into play for me and that's how I kind of do them so I find supervision really really important because it allows you to go in and say I finished this consultation there was no shared understanding and hearing your supervisor say actually yes so that's absolutely fine it's okay you can reflect on it and you know the parents haven't gone anywhere you can call back and say but in training I think we get that impression that it has to be done and dusted and finished in that one sitting but actually no it can happen and then I think the, the, the other thing we reflected on, Catherine, was in, in America, they tend to do um, the consultation training is given a longer mm. time, whereas we tend to, I was, I think it's a bit too squidded, like we're trying to fit a team somewhere within those three years. And I found in America, they have a dedicated space and there is a, almost, I think it'll be a, almost like big, where they record themselves and it's 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 not just a verbal record audio recording. It's it's video as well. And the and the fact that they're able to then sit and and unpick it with their peers, and identify mm -hmm. areas of strength and identify areas. I think it was computerized, so you get the opportunity to 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 either record. Or you get the opportunity to um, practice on on a on a on a made up case. But each of you go in with that one made of case and you're able to reflect better. And I think for me, that's the one thing I took away from the training. I thought I wish there was a bit more time given to consultation. In my opinion, it is one of the key, not the only important tool as an EP that you can have to go in to any situation and come away with learning and leave learning and empower the people you're working with. And I think it is to me the only tool within the EP within the four core five core areas where it links very well with social justice I, I don't think interventions assessments training link bring social That's justice right. to the level yeah. of consultation empowers mm. a parent empowers school teachers to mm. begin to understand what social justice is and what we mean as a, yeah. as, a as a profession I think consultation to me offers and I've felt that when I've gone out to consultation I've operated in a very socially just manner I don't think I'd be able yeah. to do that with assessments and interventions as it's clearly and as well. easily as I find it with consultations but I don't know about for you Catherine how well actually what what I've noticed as you were talking yesterday I absolutely agree that um if we can sort of move forward in providing culturally responsive consultation it will help the profession as a whole move forward in great strides in enacting social justice within our practices. And I think as you were talking, Esther, what, what I noticed was sort of echoes of how you were describing good supervision that supports your practice and, and that need to be able to tell your story for the supervisor to understand you and understand where you're coming from and the echoes of that with how you were describing culturally responsive consultation and providing that space with parents so that they felt able providing that space and that point of contact with parents so that they felt able to tell their story and and and, and to be able to convey from their perspective and to feel understood I think there are real echoes in what, what you were describing there, but how you were describing supervision and how you were describing consultation. 
Mm. Yeah, I definitely heard that as well. And I think when you, Esther, were talking about kind of um, going into supervision and, and your supervisor saying, you know, it's okay that you didn't come out with a shared understanding and that kind of empowering you to go back to um, the parents because they're not going anywhere, like you said, mm. and also that kind of mirroring your hopes for consultation in terms of empowering parents, um, which I thought yeah. was quite striking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do love, I do love social justice. I think I can talk about it. When I initially started, I couldn't cope with the, the topic and it was just so broad, but it's, it's I think, doing the, the thesis and going through and then beginning to actually practice, I actually see it's not a difficult concept. It's not very difficult to put it into practice, actually, once once I've broken it down for myself and understood what do I want. But of course, I always come back to the service has to be socially just we can't we cannot go out and 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 um say we're going to be providing a socially just practice if within our services that is not there because if we don't have um supervision that is 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 appropriate for everybody and everybody feels comfortable to have supervision we then aren't going to be going out to our schools comfortable. There's always a part of us that we are holding back because we're not sure where I can go and reflect and say, you know, while well, that was such a terrible consultation, I felt like I left parents um, worse off than I found them. And sometimes that happens, you know, because of the questions we're having to ask to explore a topic differ. So sometimes we meet school staff who have fixated on cognition and learning but when we begin to explore we realize actually there could be difficulties in communication and we step away and they feel like you never heard me you never listened to me you've gone away and you your report and focused on this when I had a problem with this and sometimes mm. you need that space with your team to reflect and sort of think how do I go back how do I go back and explain that I heard you but when I was hearing you I took away this as well. I'm I'm not sure you're aware about it. And sometimes we get it right. Sometimes you go back and you find that, no, you kind of the door closed and you kind of have to do a bit more work to open that door. But I think it's just still a learning. And that's the bit about the implications of my, um, I think both papers, it's ongoing learning. You never stop. And it's not learning that happens in a classroom. It's no. learning that happens. We're no. constantly reading the journal, constantly yeah. reading about different areas of need and understanding how we explore those areas without making um, school teachers or parents feel like we're judging how they're working or we're putting them to task. We're just kind of finding new ways of exploring. But I've, I've, um, I've fallen in love with social justice. I've fallen in love with consultation. Difficult <laughs> it has been, and sometimes I come away from me thinking, goodness me, it's taken all my energy. But it's sort of when you have a conversation with the same co- afterwards, or a week later and they say you got me thinking about this that I hadn't thought about but it's also something about us understanding and learning about other cultures because it's not just as much as we're saying it's not all about ethnicity and race and it's we, we need to include other areas and look at it more broadly it is important for us I think for me what I found really has helped is when I begin to learn about the culture especially when I'm aware that I'm meeting a parent um of a different ethnicity that I've never met before. And I need to kind of understand, you know, mm. not so much their journey, but the, the journey to where they are, but sort of understanding where they're coming from, understanding that culture and how they view education, how they view child bringing. Mm. You know, am I going to be able to explore um, self, self-care self and independence in the same way that I'd explore it with a parent um, mm. that I met um, two weeks ago? Having that understanding, and I think that's where the ongoing learning is happening, where you're constantly... Mm 
reflecting with your peers and kind of checking in. Has anyone worked with a parent from, you know, maybe from um, from Canada? How is it different mm. from, from mm. Canada and America and here? Am I okay to go in and ask this kind of questions and sort mm. of check it? Some people will have more knowledge or maybe meeting a parent because even though I am from Africa, there are some cultures I haven't experienced or met yeah. before. So I've got to always think when I walk in, will they view me as a friend just because we look alike? But actually, mm. I have no knowledge at all of their culture. And so sometimes I guess maybe because when I walk in, there is a sense that I'm new. And in some of my schools and some of the clusters I have, I kind of feel not an outsider per se, but I am different from what they're used to within the EP profession, if that makes sense. So sometimes mm. it could be an assumption with some parents that she gets us, she knows us. So I kind of maybe it's a burden I put on myself where I feel I've got to make sure I know something about this particular person because where they come from, I've got no understanding. Yeah. Just being careful to make sure that, as as I say before, I am then getting into the point and I'm making sure I'm, when I get to that conversation, that particular point, I, I drop that self-disclosure where I make them know that I understand where you're coming from. I haven't got a full understanding. I want to understand more. But at least yeah. I've done a bit of homework. Some people say they yeah. learn to greet with that language. So when they walk in, they yeah. kind of have that greeting. Can't remember whether it was you, Catherine, who said or somebody shared. And they yeah, then it was one of our other trainees. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I picked that from you from that just one conversation, Catherine. And it's sort of when you have it with other people, you're realizing we're all sort of on that journey. But I think because we never come together to have this conversation, we're not learning from each other. We're sort of waiting for journals to be published. And so there's a lot of learning that's happening that we're not aware of because we don't publish theses, you know. Which also, I suppose, goes goes back to your original point that you were making about the lack, sorry, the lapse of time between what gets Mm. published and what's going on in the culture and in society and what's happening and kind of recognising that both are critical to kind of be holding in mind because... Yeah, what's going on around us isn't necessarily going to appear in the literature in the sort of journal article form for quite some time. And, you know, life's happening right now. So there is that paper that you published on social justice Mm -hmm. and EP in practice. Really interesting findings. If there's one or two kind of key themes or key takeaway messages that you would would really want to highlight to people or suggest Mm -hmm. that there's something that they could follow up in. What would be the key things that you would draw out? I, I think one of the key things, and it's sort of come up in uh, as we've talked about that thing we've talked about, about what is going on currently in society isn't necessarily reflected in the literature we're looking at because of the time lapse. And I think that helps to illustrate the dynamic nature of, of, of what we're talking about and the, the sort of the examination of the enactment of, socially just practices within our services how that is a dynamic cyclical process that needs to be returned to repeatedly because we are continuing to learn but the context around us is continuing to change so both those things are happening in a dynamic way which means that it has to be a cyclical process so I guess that's one e-learning I would take from it that sort of moves us away from that idea of culturally um, competent practice I'm competent I'm done but but culturally responsive is is an ongoing cyclical thing 
And I think the other point I would make, um, and I think one of the key things that the paper, in, in my view, has achieved, because considering social justice in our practice as educational psychologists is potentially overwhelming, because where is there a bit of practice to which this consideration doesn't apply? You know, and does it apply to, you know, I have to think about my values, I have to think about discussing values with my colleagues and creating the comfortable situation to do that and then I have to think about how I end up that in practice and the relationship so you know it's part of everything and I think one of the key things that our paper has achieved is to sort of conceptualize that in one model to try and put some sort of order and structure on what is potentially um, quite overwhelming and leaving people perhaps not knowing where to start whereas if there's a model and a framework you, you know you can think oh well I'm going to start here because this seems to suit our development but I can see how that fits in with every, everything else mm. I don't have to address everything else at this moment in time but I'm happy to start here and I can contextualize it in in, in the rest of the things that I might go on to consider I, I think that's a really hopefully useful and important thing and that people will take that model and refine and adapt it and there'll be there'll be newer versions to come hopefully yeah i think it's the same for me catherine because the model breaks it down into what the you, you kind of have to look at the context of your own service because this was when we when i did my um empirical study it was in the northwest but what we kind of the, the model kind of helps do is that before you start to think about social justice, you need to think about your context of your service. And then you need to think about the EP team. And then you've got to think about EP working with clients. And the model really breaks it down clearly that, as Catherine says, you don't have to focus on, you can be really good in one area and then find that you've got gaps in another area. But what we're saying is it, it's, it's you, you may not always be getting everything right because we it's a constant journey we never get to a point where we're competent in everything but it, it really does fall it fits in really well with those three knowing your context knowing your service knowing who you're working with and then being making sure um, understanding that it's complex it's ongoing and I remember the focus group members constantly keeping thinking they were going round and round in circles but as I was sat there, I was thinking, God, you've done a lot of progress. You've made a lot of progress. So and I think in, in, in one, the second thing I really found really, really important for me was data gathering. Because as they were sat there kind of reflecting and thinking, we've, we've, we've not done enough because you're constantly identifying what else you could do better at. But if you kind of collected your data, you're able to actually see how much you're doing and where your gaps are. Because I think as a, as, as a profession, sometimes we, we don't, collect the right data so we're kind of um going out and we're not realizing that our consultations are really good when we're working with this group of clients but not with this because we don't collect that kind of data we don't collect data from parents to kind of tell us you know how was consultation was it what you thought it was so when i think for us as a service i think that's where we are at we're kind of working our way towards collecting data finding out how can we find out when we go out to consultations are parents actually finding it beneficial? Do they feel like we're listening to them? And we're kind of making it really short, a really short questionnaire, it's just a like at scale of one to five. So we're getting data coming in quickly. But of course, like every other service, we're not there yet. 
But I recognize sometimes we're very similar to this service where we are doing quite a lot, but because we're not stepping back to collect our data and reflect on that data, we're not realizing the steps that we're making towards being a socially um, a socially just service that's seeking to be quite responsive to our community. But I believe for us, we are, we, we are all, we're taking little baby steps. We're beginning to understand our context. Each one of us goes out to a cluster of schools. We're beginning to gather data to understand our schools and the communities. We're having those consultations and we kind of use our ELSA supervision as a way to tap into those ELSAs and find out, you know, what's your community like? Who, who are the children you collect? And as they're sharing that with us, we're kind of collecting this information as individuals. And I think maybe for us, it's coming together as a service to share what we're collecting. But we're definitely at the point where I think we're data, data is becoming an important thing for us. And I think mm -hmm. to me, that was what screamed out when I was doing my analysis. Data was really important and needed for us to actually identify inequality, evaluate our, our services to make sure we're not perpetuating it, but we're actually addressing it. Yeah, I think that's really something that I that spoke out to me when I read your paper as well. And I, I uh, Catherine, what you were saying, I really enjoyed looking at the visual model. I'm a very visual person yeah. <laughs> um, and kind of breaking it down into different sections makes it feel less overwhelming. And like mm. you were saying, Esther, kind of noticing that things are moving and things are changing because it can sometimes feel disheartening when you feel like things aren't aren't moving um, and you're not kind of measuring or being able to see the measure of kind of the changes that are happening. Um, I would like to kind of take us on to our last question um, mm -hmm. and just ask if there is one book, article or chapter uh, that you've read about consultation or about EP practice generally that has changed your thinking. I actually, I have drifted back into counselling um, purely because I think it's 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 a skill that really helps um, because it, it's I think it's what me wanting to go back to understanding um, active listening and what listening is. So I would I would I've got a book in particular because I'm reading on Carl Rogers on becoming a person, which I'm sure people have read over and over again. But kind of coming back to it to just remind myself where where my love for counselling came from and how I'm. And it links very well with consultation anyway. So that would be, um, or any psychotherapy book you fancy. But I would say um, I'm currently um, enjoying a counselling book. The two things I'm going to say are going to stand in quite stark contrast to each other. Because um, the first, I would say, is um, a book called Humble, The Quiet Power of Ancient Virtue. Uh, and it's, it's sort of a, a book about being honest about your weaknesses and how actually that can be a source of strength and I think that has really come across um, in a lot of what we've been talking about and so I would offer that um, as a, a book I have found really useful and really interesting it's by somebody called Darren Tongaren and apologies to um, Daryl if I'm pronouncing his name wrongly um, in contrast to that the other one I would offer is mine and Esther's paper, which is a slightly less humble approach. <laughs> but I, I think it has, uh, as we sort of constructed it and worked on constructing the model, I personally found that very containing, you know, because I'm interested in social justice. I've, I've started to do research with various trainees about social justice and EP training. 
and often found it quite overwhelming and that, you know, where would we start this research? There is so much to think about. And so I have found the construction of that model helpful and, and containing and actually as a basis to sort of build on from and to look at where to go next and where to research next. So I would offer those two slightly in contrast to each other. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you both so much for your time. No, and and thank you for the for the invitation and the opportunity to. And just been it's just been such a delight to listen to you again, Esther, as you talk about your practice. I've sort of missed it. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity because I think it's it's an opportunity to reflect and sort of I, I didn't realise how passionate I was about consultation and social justice. Thank you both hugely.